What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Gregory Duquesne from Paris, who is the head of planning, the head of strategy at MNC Saatchi Paris. We were fortunate enough to sit down a couple of weeks ago when I was in Paris, and it's great to be talking to you, Gregoire. Oh, Gregory. I always, why was I going to call you by the French name that you're not even known by? Wow, gosh. <laughs> Gregory, why aren't you called Gregoire? Let's start there. Just call me Greg and, uh, you know, and <laughs> be done with it. Everybody calls me Greg anyway. Okay. But why aren't you called Gregoire? Uh, because of uh, Gregory Peck. My uh, mother was uh, a fan of Gregory Peck. Mm. And my parents are uh, Anglophiles. That's so my brother's uh, name is Timothy. Oh, this makes complete sense. Uh, it seems like a very unfrench thing to do, being that the French are one of the few countries in the world that has a, a body that monitors which words are allowed in and out of France. Uh, <laughs> somehow Gregory got through. I don't, I don't know. Your parents must be very connected. So um, we caught up with each other in, in Paris and we had a, a sit down with a few other strategists and it was awesome. It's one of my favorite things about traveling is catching up with strategy folk because I often have conversations with strategy folk that honestly, I have with nobody else and they're often intellectual they're, ser they're not always serious they can be a bit of fun and we just try to work out things together and uh, it was beautiful so first of all thank you for organizing that My Second, thank you for giving me your book it is called in short Neuf, which means new eye and it's interesting because first of all I was you know, you asked me whether I liked it and most of the time I was reading it in French, being really surprised at myself being able to read it anymore because I used to speak a bit of French and now I've, uh, I've, I've lost a little bit of it. But, um, you know, having a new eye is, is, I guess, at the heart of what you believe planning is about, correct? Yes, uh, absolutely. To sum it up, uh, I would say that um, I'm fascinated by value and uh, the fact that most of the time value comes from uh, looking at things from a fresh eye. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's, it's always uh, quality is uh, looking at things from uh, the, the person who actually makes things. But value is always looking at things from uh, the perspective of the person buying it. Mm -hmm. So giving that person a fresh eye on uh, and a new perspective on things can increase the value of something. Yeah, and, and, and to be a little maybe self-analytical, or I don't know if this is meta, you described the act of writing a book in a way that created new value for you as jogging for the mind. What do you mean, what do you mean by that? I mean, basically, when I, when I wrote the book, most of the themes, I picked themes where I didn't have uh, an answer. Like, uh, for example, there was one which was, um, why do we never see uh, fire extinguishers? And uh, because uh, they are red, they are very visible, and we don't see them. But I didn't have an answer. So uh, the fun bit was just, you know, trying to uh, figure out things and just digging into things. And uh, mm. it's uh, just a fun thing to do, Try, trying to understand things. It's, it's, I'll tell you what else is funny about the word jogging is that there's no French word for jogging. <laughs> Correct? Yes, it's true. Yeah. It's like, je vais faire du parking, je vais faire du jogging, je vais faire du shopping. Uh, and again, uh, it's, you know, I, I, I would expect no less from somebody whose parents got an American name or some, I'll call it an American name, an American name through the French authorities that you're now using other American words like jogging. I'm just going to point that out to you. You can reflect about that yeah, in the coming, coming days. 
It's, it's interesting because basically it's, it's about branding from a French perspective. Because you've just branded uh, the fact of uh, running and uh, you give it a name. And the fact that you give a name to something and you, you give uh, a lot of things with that name. Like, um, for, I'll just give you another example, which I think is fun. Um, you, you know, uh, gay, uh, like uh, the gay people. Okay. Uh, if you were talking about uh, homosexuality, you're, you're talking about the sexual preference. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about gay, you're talking about the lifestyle. So it reframes that choice as a much less threatening choice for most people. Mm. And I think jogging is uh, the same. It uh, reframes the act of running uh, in a more and more interesting way. Yeah. And then the idea of writing a book is jogging for the mind reframes the idea of writing a book from being potentially torture and difficult and impossible to, no, I'm, I'm going for a run and this is how I practice and I'm going to see what's up there. So you're reframing all of these things at all times. Yeah. What is the answer to the question, why don't people remark or see the fire extinguishers that are near them because they're uh, red and very visible? What's the answer? It's, it's been tested. So uh, you have to know that uh, three quarters of the people actually don't see fire extinguishers. And uh, even if you live very long in a building, you're not more likely to, uh, to see them. So uh, it's it's not like uh, you know you're, you're you're not alone. We are we are actually quite uh, quite many like that. It has to do with um, filters. Our mind is a huge filtering device. We have something in the region of uh, I think it's uh, 40 million uh, informations that our uh, brain has to process, and uh, it can only if, uh, process something in the region of 40 or 60 every uh, every mm -hmm. second. So basically, the rest just goes uh, in the spam box. Mm. And, uh, sorry. I was just going to say, there's, so there's a piece of research that you cite where people, I think, in, a, in an office or a factory, in, in some kind of working environment, were asked, so they were in their regular positions where they usually work, and researchers came in and said, where is the nearest fire extinguisher? And a lot of people didn't know. Exactly. And that included people who'd worked in the same place for over 10 years. Uh, absolutely, because uh, the the fact that you're for a long time in a place doesn't increase the relevance uh, of it. I think uh, basically it's uh, the the biggest uh, filtering system we all have is uh, it's not my issue, and uh, it's a huge invisibility device. And uh, for example, when someone uh, discovers that uh, his wife or his husband has an affair, has had an affair, usually they say, "How could I have been so blind?" But uh, the the fact is. That uh, he wasn't blind. He was just uh, filtering. It was just heavy filtering. Oh, you're you're working. Um, you're working evenings. Oh, okay. I just filter that information. It's uh, it's unrelevant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. And uh, we all filter so massively. A, a nice tip for people uh, listening is just you know trying to change your filters, and uh, exactly like your car, just uh, give you a few funny things that you can do. Uh, the first one is uh, to try to start the day uh, with uh, the moral of the day. Like, what am, what am I going to take out of this day? So it, it can be about anything. It can be about, uh, you know, grief, uh, uh, yellow, uh, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, if you do that, you are going to um, take your filters uh, out and you're going to look at things very, very differently. If you, if you think my filter is, is going to be, I'm going to look for everything that is funny. You will look at the um, the situation from a very different angle. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a, just changing filters is, is very good for the mind. 
Yeah, like if you step into the world in the morning and you assume that everything is ridiculous, then your brain's going to start to look for all the ridiculous things. And there might be things that you've taken for granted that really aren't that ridiculous. And you're like, no, that's strange. Why is it strange? You think about it and then you arrive at somewhere new. Um, do you have like a red fire extinguisher near your desk in the office as some kind of physical metaphor to encourage your team to pay more attention to the things that they filter out? I've been uh, offered one uh, or, <laughs> and, or offered pictures of, uh, of one. Actually, uh, I even used it to explain to uh, one of my clients once why uh, people weren't seeing his ads. It was a really interesting phenomenon. We, uh, we, we explained to him that uh, basically it's not that people didn't see our ads, it's just that they didn't want to, uh, to see them. And uh, we proved it in a funny way, mm-hmm. which is uh, we did two ads, one with their logo very big and the second one with their logo very small and uh, very hidden. Mm-hmm. The, uh, we proved that the efficiency of the advertising on the same target was um, one point out of 10 bigger because uh, the rest of the people just just chose not to see it because it was them. Mm. So we basically what we did was say, you're like uh, a fire extinguisher. People choose not to see you. They see green, they see advertising that looks exactly like the the advertising you've been doing for the the past uh, 10 to 20 years. They choose not to see you. So if you want people to notice you, do uh, like uh, the fire extinguisher would do, you know, paint yourself pink and uh, Mm. try to do it not to look like yourself. Which is a tricky and thing to explain. To did me. that have anything to do with the brand having a bad reputation, or was it largely that they just hadn't changed anything? That the advertising needed to be more provocative? Well, it's a little bit of everything because uh, the, the brand is uh, is actually a brand that uh, is is very dear to my heart, called uh, Yves Rocher, and uh, it's uh, a nice natural beauty brand, but they have the uh, habit of running very promotional campaign. And a lot of people are not uh, attracted to this brand because of those promotional campaigns. They just, you know, they filter out this brand because they feel that it's uh, too promotional. Mm. So it's a, a little bit of everything you mentioned. Interesting. All right. So I'm going to ask you a few other questions that you answer through the book. The next one is, why do we sometimes find ourselves in the kitchen having forgotten what we were there to do? Ah, um, uh, this one is funny. So I think we've all been uh, there. You know, you just go into a place and it can be the kitchen or it can be anywhere. And you're just thinking, why am I here? What am I doing here? And basically there there was an experiment that was done um, a a few years ago where they had people through um, virtual VR um, uh, glasses uh, do a series of experiments. And in some experiment, they had to move from uh, one room to the other. And in other experiments, they were not moving from uh, one place to the other. And what what was happening was uh, every time you have the feeling that you're moving from one place to the other, your, uh, your memory tends to um, flush out all the, the memories associated to that context. And it works in reverse. You know, uh, I don't know if you, uh, you are aware of that, but uh, there's a, a memory technique called, um, I think it's called Castle for the Mind. And basically what you do is uh, you take a house and in that house you will put in every room and every furniture of every room, if you want, the memory that you want to store in there. And it makes it very easy to uh, to remember because uh, memory is very context dependent. 
So uh, it's uh, it's one of those uh, re- you know, really strange things, but uh, memory that uh, yeah. that that we don't know. Yeah, I've I've heard it described as a memory palace, and I'm I'm uh, memory to, palace. Sorry. Yeah, not and also I'm wondering if I've heard of it as a memory pyramid. I, I don't know if that's incorrect, but the way I understood memory pyramid, I, this could be totally wrong, is that you you connect a memory to or a thing you want to remember to a couple of other things, but to hear you describe it as you put the memory in a particular room in a doll's mm-hmm. house or in a castle or in a, in a palace in your mind is interesting. Could you just this might be so obvious, but could you give me an example of how you might do that? Well, uh, you take your family home, for example. Every time someone gives you, uh, like you want to um, memorize a presentation, for example. So uh, you have, let's say, 10 things you want to memorize. So uh, the first thing you would want to memorize, for example, is um, uh, the introduction. And in introduction, you make a mention of Thomas Jefferson. So you just imagine uh, Thomas Jefferson in the entrance of the home. Mm. Then you move to the next room and you start with um, part one of what you want to say. And uh, it's about um, the car industry. So you just picture uh, a big car just placed completely randomly in a big red car, placed completely randomly in the next room. Etc. Etc. And then when you move, very easy. You just you know you just meet again Jefferson, and then you meet again the car, and then you meet again the next thing that you placed. It's very uh, very straightforward, and it, it works uh, wonders just to uh, to remember things and uh, remember them in the right order. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the the next question there are for some people potentially gender stereotypes in this, but it's an interesting question to ask, which is why does your father respond to the to the phone, the telephone standing, and your mother prefers to sit when she answers the phone. Yeah, apologies for uh, the gender bias. I'm not sure. I mean, the, a lot of things must be said on that. I mean, the first thing is uh, uh, a lot of what I'm going to say are a hypothesis. But just to to give you, so I'll give you the reason. I'll give you a few other examples, and also uh, I'll start with saying, you know, I know that uh, some people. It's not the case for everybody, and that's uh, for a lot of uh, women tend to, uh, to to phone standing up and uh, the reverse. It's just, you know, generality. But the point is, in most culture, or most Western culture, uh, the, um, uh, um, the split of tasks between men and women is different. So uh, men uh, are more, uh, were more for centuries and centuries uh, going out, uh, whereas women had to stay. So women had better social skills, whereas men were more when, like, for things like hunting, for example, or you know, uh, working, you know, giving orders and exchanging information. So the, the insight is usually women are much better for understanding that um, in every form of communication, the connection with others is very important. Whereas for men, that uh, reality very often escapes them. So I'll, I'll just give you a few examples. I mean, the, the, first, uh, the first one is uh, if you have a father or a, or a grandfather and you, you call them, when you call your parents or grandparents, I mean, and uh, you, uh, you talk to your father first, what he will tend to do usually is after uh, a minute of getting the raw data and the raw information, then he will t- say, okay, I'll put you through to your mother. Basically, the um, implicit is uh, if you want to talk to someone, you know, just to talk, then it's better to talk to her. 
but it also works in reverse, like for um, postcards. For postcards, usually, it's usually a woman would tend to uh, to think of sending postcards rather than men, and men usually have that uh, that same sentence, which is, "I have nothing to say." But postcards are, are purely the, the the value of a postcard is not in the message; it's in saying, telling people that uh, you thought about them. So it's it's all about social connection, and not at all about information. Mm. And you could go, you know, on and on and on and on. It's uh, Women are much, much better at uh, maintaining social skills. And um, one of the other uh, things that has been uh, studied by linguists is uh, that when you look at speech in terms of gender, what you tend to see is uh, women are uh, much more, have a bigger tendency to make uh, indirect uh, requests. Because uh, when you have to um, what you when you have to maintain relationships, you uh, you try never to offend anyone. So uh, it's much less uh, offending and threatening to make an indirect request rather than a direct request, which men tend to. Mm. So I mean, you're a writer. You work in you know worked in you work in planning. You try to understand people. Uh, do you answer the phone in the way that you're describing, or do you do you, is that true to you? <laughs> Never thought about it. Uh, yeah, I guess yes, yes, quite. Yeah, when I was young, and uh, you know, it's like aeons ago, they, they used to be phones that uh, actually were connected to things, <laughs> which they aren't anymore. Mm. And uh, so, uh, and, and I was feeling uh, constrained by the phone, and I couldn't. I, I was standing and tried to walk, and I couldn't walk much uh, very far. But uh, yes, sometimes when I'm talking on the phone, I need to walk just to have uh, clearer thoughts. So uh, yes, I'm, mm. uh, I'm very much uh, like the cliche I'm mentioning. But I'm sure a lot of people yeah. aren't. It's just a generality. Yeah, and maybe they are with certain people. I mean, I, I like to have a good one-on-one chat that might go for too long, <laughs> hence why I force people to record podcasts with me. There's another question that involves sitting and standing, and it's this. Why do French women put makeup on standing while American women sit to put makeup on? Oh, yeah. This one is uh, really fascinating. So um, just to give you a little bit of uh, context, it was uh, a few years ago and I was working for uh, a beauty and luxury brand and uh, they, were, they had done a lot of uh, ethnology and they were studying different types of uh, women uh, putting a foundation on their face. So it, it was women from um, four types of culture. They were French women. They were Chinese women, they were Japanese women and American women. So what we did was, you know, we went through a lot of uh, uh, videos and uh, a lot of qualitative information just to, uh, to ground that insight. So basically what we discovered is that um, the way women see beauty in different cultures is often very grounded in metaphors that uh, we are not even aware of. So if you take French women, and, and it's very strong with the foundation. For example, foundation in French is more fond de teint. And so even the name in French, fond de teint, refers more to uh, color than it uh, refers to um, the foundation of a building. Mm. So uh, the metaphor in French beauty usually is that uh, you paint a self-portrait. So women are standing in front of the mirror and basically they are trying to make the woman in the mirror as close as the image they have of uh, what they, they would want to look like. 
And that's things, a lot of you will see that through a lot of very minute gestures, but you will also see that in the way they talk about beauty. Like, um, for example, French women tend to see beauty. Uh, I mean, the more upmarket you, uh, you move, the more French women tend to see beauty as a way of uh, revealing their uniqueness. Whereas when you look at uh, American women, you tend to see that work tend to make them look more and more like, you know, that there is um, this film called uh, Bombshell. Uh, that talks about uh, Fox, uh, what happened in Fox and, uh, you know, uh, women being harassed. The interesting thing is when you look at uh, all the, um, the, the photographs from the posters, the three women are very, very, very much alike. They, uh, they are three blonde women. Their hair look exactly the same. And you, uh, it must not have escaped you that uh, most women from um, uh, American TV network look very much the same you know there it's like the professional look and mm. that's uh, women from uh, so basically when you, when you when you say the same are you, you're you're talking about uh, makeup the hair, and, the and, makeup hair right? and hair yeah like yeah. Uh, for example uh, when uh, women arrive in um, from the the country to the big cities they tend to stop cur having curly hair and making sure that uh, their hair look uh, more straight. So women tend to change the way they look because in American culture, beauty is a construction. So the metaphor is different. In uh, French culture, beauty is about uh, painting your self-portrait. And this is why, for example, when uh, French women use foundation, they are very, very focused on finding the uh, right color. And uh, they use the um, little bit of their hand to, uh, to put different uh, shades of foundation and try to exactly like a color palette. Whereas American women tend to use tools they uh they just you know they put foundation uh with tools and they they are sitting and uh most of the time for example uh the uh, beauty product in a, a french woman's bathroom they will um they will be more in disorder whereas in an american um for an american woman she will sit and she will have uh, boxes where she puts all her makeup and it's very organized a bit like uh, you know your diy toolbox in a way mm. and uh in uh, japan in case you wonder, it's about trying to make your face as invisible as possible. So that's the beautiful details like your eyes and your lips will uh, stand out more. And in China, the um, foundation is very much seen as a magical potion, a magical uh, filter. So uh, helping women uh, transform their skin in a more Western-like uh, skin. So the metaphors are very different. Mm. And and so you're saying this is from research and you're saying that in general, the majority culture is these things while knowing that there are other metaphors and ideas within these cultures. But in general, this is what you've come across. And, and those metaphors travel. So uh, what, you will see, what you will see is that uh, now uh, uh, rituals from uh, Asia, like uh, rituals from Korea, beauty rituals from Korea, mm are traveling to France, etc., etc. So, yes, it's uh, generalities. But when we were watching women, the, the rituals were so amazingly different. You know, the beauty rituals were so amazingly different. And then when we started digging, you know, uh, about and trying to understand uh, where they were coming from, a lot of this made sense through, uh, through these uh, insights on beauty. Mm. Yeah, I mean, South Korea has come out of nowhere as a 
a giant in in makeup in the past few years. It's really dominant. I mean, people from Asia travel to Seoul to visit. Um, is it Myeongdong and yeah, Myeong yeah, Myeongdong, Namyeongju, no, not Namyeongju, Myeongdong, um, to visit all the the makeup stores and they go home with suitcases full of this stuff. Interesting. A uh, couple more questions. And what I love is that you have, I think it's 24, 25 questions in this book. And I now have an interview structure. It's incredible. Thank you for doing all that pre-work <laughs> for me. There's two, two more that I'll ask. The first one is, why do certain people have more chance than others? Uh, the, um, this one I love because I think it's connected to something that, that can make you happier. It's very connected to life. So it's research done by um, a British uh, psychologist uh, called uh, Mr. Wiseman. I can't remember his uh, first name, so apologies for that. And it all started for me, uh, and I discovered this guy, uh, this uh, psychologist, uh, in, uh, in a video where he was talking to someone who became not an instant millionaire, but uh, who actually became, um, got out from the street and became a millionaire. So, uh, and uh, basically, um, and actually it's uh, the person who is in uh, the real person behind that film with uh, Will Smith called the, the Pursuit of Happiness. So those two people are talking and uh, Wiseman asks questions on, uh, on luck, which, are, which is something that he has been uh, studying very, very much. So interestingly, what he did was uh, he took 500 people who said they were lucky and 500 people who said they, they were unlucky and he compared uh, how they looked at life. So I'll give you a few different things that uh, they did, but uh, it all comes down to uh, the way you look at life. So the first thing is, you never know what is going to be an opportunity. And most people tend to filter out opportunity, thinking that they are either problems or uh, ir irrelevant. So to prove that, he did something really interesting. He gave his uh, test, his, uh, the people he was testing, a newspaper, and he, he asked them, okay, you need to count the number of images that you see in that newspaper. But in the middle of the newspaper, printed, just, there was just you know, text on uh, half a page and written in gray, there was written, stop counting, there are 72 images. And the interesting thing is the unlucky people didn't, didn't see it. The lucky people did because basically the, the unlucky people were just filtering out the possibility, whereas the lucky people uh, didn't. The lucky people tend to be more uh, optimistic, so they try longer. The, uh, the lucky people tend to are, be more open, so uh, they meet more people and they have more opportunities. So basically... The interesting thing is there is a psychology of luck and we can all be much more lucky if we look at life in a, in a different way. So uh, it fascinates me and it works quite well. I mean, I've tried uh, some of the principles and it does work quite well. I mean, uh, mm. if you go to a party and you think uh, you are going to, um, you, you are just looking for uh, meeting the person of your dreams, but maybe in that party you, you, there is uh, someone which is a business opportunity. If you're only focused on meeting the love of your dream, then you will not uh, notice that person with the business opportunity. And, you know, it's, uh, it's endless. So, uh, yep. so luck is very, very much uh, a matter of point of view. Right. And so the moral in that is that 
based on that piece of research, un unlucky people kind of remove themselves from opportunity by thinking that good things might not happen. I, I, I like the word optimism, but I want to point out a little bit of nuance with it in that there's also a thing called forced optimism, which is when you're with groups of people and you're only ever allowed to say amazing, perfect things. And that can feel like the Truman Show or you know, potentially Stepford Wives. You're not allowed to say dark things because that means you're dark and we don't like that here. Uh, because at the same yeah, time... We, we're coming, uh, we, we are coming from very different cultures. So yes, what I meant to say uh, on, um, when, when I was talking about optimism is just, you know, um, I think it's just, you know, how you see uh, outcomes. Like uh, if you yeah. have to make a uh, hundred phone calls, just, you know, cold calls, uh, business, new business, uh, new business calls, just, you know, trying to find new clients. Mm -hmm. If the first time doesn't work and the second time doesn't work and the third time doesn't work, etc., after a while it runs you down a little bit. And the way you, uh, if it runs you down a little bit, then you will be less likely to succeed the next time and the next time and the next time. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you th you're thinking, okay, no, it's just you know, it's just a game, and I'm you know, I need to get like uh, 50 refusals, then it changes everything. Uh, actually, there's a, a guy who did that. He was very, uh, very shy. And he, uh, he invented a game where uh, he had to do things to get out of his uh, shyness. And one of the things was, uh, okay, today, this morning, I need to get a refusal. So he went in the streets. And, uh, and basically what happens is if you do, then what happens is <laughs> you don't get as many refusals as you would expect because you see yeah. it as a game. Yeah. And yeah, that's exposure therapy. Yeah. I, I wasn't trying to get into a culture and nuance with what you were talking about. I think hearing you talk, I'm, I'm, I, sometimes optimism is used as a form of fascism Yeah, in, in some cultures, right? Because for example, I'm optimistic about every podcast I record. We're going to turn up, we're going to have a conversation. That's quite an optimistic thing to expect and to do. Yet we might talk about problems and some of it will be happy. Some of it might not be happy, but I don't need mm -hmm. to turn up optimistically and say, tell me only the most amazing things that have ever happened to you. And, you know, so I just, there's nuance. Some, you know, so it's really optimism as fascism that I push back against, which is not what you were talking about. Okay. No. Last one I want to get into, because, you know, I, I like to have a, a coffee by myself every now and then, but you asked the question, why don't we trust people who prefer to have coffee by themselves? This one is quite uh, an obvious one for uh, most people working and planning. And uh, so, because uh, if you've uh -oh. ever been on that uh, market, then you have noticed that um, coffee is bad communication. So there might be, you know, different reasons to that. I mean, for example, one of the thing was um, coffee, are places where people meet to have conversation in you know, most, most cultures. It's very, very true in France, uh, but it's also true in Italy. Uh, thanks to Starbucks, I think it's to some extent true uh, in the US as well mm. and uh, other places uh, of the world. Uh, but uh, in France, when you want to have a conversation, you say you want to have coffee. A bit in uh, the same way, actually, uh, that's in the US in the evening. If you want to have a conversation, you say you want to grab a beer. It's uh, the same kind of uh, ritual. So coffee is very, very much associated to, um, to conversation. And uh, th there's been an experiment made by um, a coffee brand. I mean, actually, uh, um, instant coffee brand. I, th I think it was Nescafe who, uh, who did that in Italy. And what they did was um, they did an experiment where people had to start talking to strangers in a library. And uh, the, the only difference was 
half of the time they were talking to strangers, just, you know, cold, just coming to strangers and people were looking at them really, you know, strangely. And the second time they were coming to strangers with a cup of coffee. If you come to a stranger with a cup of coffee in your hand, it means you mean no harm and you just, you know, just there to, to have a uh, friendly talk. So coffee is very, very much associated to, um, to talking. It's like uh, there is a culture code on uh, coffee. It's interesting. So when I was a teenager, I stayed in a couple of homes in France with families. And I think back then, telephone calls were still timed, as in local phone calls were still, you had to pay by the minute. I think this is correct. Mm-hmm. And as a teenager back then, I would go home from school and sometimes I'd be on the phone for an hour or two, maybe longer, just having a chat. Whereas the teenagers I was with in France back then would make a very quick phone call and then we'd all go down to the, to the local cafe and hang out, play some baby foot, something like that. And, and it was definitely a different social culture, which I, I actually quite appreciated. Yeah. Coffee is very central in, uh, in our culture, as, uh, centrally associated to talking. It was uh, like uh, philosophy coffees aeons ago. It was also the place where people uh, were coming to talk business. You, you know the, uh, the origin of uh, Lloyd's? You know the Lloyd's uh, of London, uh, the insurance? Uh, no. Yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it was actually, uh, I think, a pub or a coffee where people were coming to talk. And because there were so many sailors, you could come and invest in different uh, ships. And basically what you would do is uh, you would write your name under the name of the ship, meaning that you would invest in that ship. Hence the name uh, underwriting, which comes from uh, that origin. Mm. But uh, So those places are places of conversation, you know, casual mm. conversation. Oh, I love hearing these stories and anecdotes and the research and then the philosophy around the research. It's awesome. Uh, the book came out a few years ago. It's called Oi Nerf. I don't think you've got plans at this stage to translate it into English. Obviously, I hope that you do. No, no. Can, I, can I suggest a few things for, uh, for readers? Just, yeah, uh, well, yeah. Not, not, non-readers, actually. <laughs> um, the, the first thing is, is just to be aware of what I would call the vu um, so, you know, you, you know, déjà vu, which is a, a word that even uh, American people use. Mm. So uh, déjà vu is the feeling that uh, you've, you've actually, you know, you've been there. You've seen that moment. You, it's, it's already, uh, you've already been there. But uh, vu jade is exactly the reverse. It's something that uh, you have done or heard a thousand times. And then all of a sudden, your mind realized that you had not actually understood what was happening. Mm. And, you know, uh, Vujade is very, very simple. It's just, you know, trying to, to say, oh, it's funny. It's just that. It's just that moment where you catch and you say, oh, it's funny. I'll just tell you a funny anecdote just for, uh, from this morning, but uh, just to illustrate. Uh, this morning I was talking to, uh, to one of my best friends. He has a cat. And then I realized that when his cat was um, uh, mowing, that's right, or uh, wailing, I don't know how you say in English, uh, yeah, meowing. Well, how, do the meowing. Say meow, how do the French say meow again? Mewly. Okay. Actually, it's, it's the interesting bit. The, the cat <laughs> sounded like a baby, which, is, uh, yeah, yeah, which yeah. really surprised me. But uh, so, so I, I did some, uh, some quick digging, and uh, it turns out that uh, cats have uh, actually emulated that sound to make sure that uh, we would feed them. Mm-hmm. So it's the cat training us. 
which which I find is interesting because uh, it's it very typical of cats to be honest. It's like uh, whereas we we have transformed dogs, but uh, it always seems to me that uh, cats are just you know the bosses and they have transformed uh, transformed us into uh, their pets. So uh, yeah. the fact that uh, they're wailing is a is an interesting. It's it's interesting because they're actually making the noise of babies just to make sure that uh, we we actually get that we should feed them. Mm. Yeah, it's why I was uh, actually, Rachel Mercer is a renowned strategist in New York and she does a podcast with Shan Biglioni, who's uh, French. And I was over at Shan's place last week and there was a cat there, a visiting cat, and it definitely sounded like a baby. And then uh, we were talking about the theory, Rachel was talking about the theory that uh, I don't think it's hers. I think it's it's probably a Reddit theory that cats are an alien species who've come to this planet to conquer humans and they do everything they can to get us to do whatever they want. So, uh, yeah, I, I relate to what you're saying. There's supporting evidence from one interaction I've had. Exactly. And, uh, and uh, so, it, but for me, it's, you know, it's just an example of uh, uh, Vujade. It's just uh, one of those examples of things that you can notice every day and that, you know, make. And uh, I, I know that uh, we have in common the fact that we're both very interested by um, stand up comedy as mm. a way to uncover insights. Stand up comedy very often comes from that kind of place where uh, you notice something that is very familiar and you make the familiar unfamiliar mm-hmm. and funny and uh, transgressive and interesting. So uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, cats are training us is an obvious uh, premise for, mm-hmm. for something. Uh, and cats are making baby noise just, you know, to, is just a proof of that, uh, that premise. Yeah, I like it, I like it. Gregory, where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> To be honest, they can't. Uh, I was afraid you would ask. The easiest way is uh, I'm on LinkedIn if uh, you know someone wants to get in touch. But I tend to spend uh, very little time on uh, social networks. Trying, I very, uh, I mean, I seldom publish or things like that. So uh, they wouldn't. I'm very sorry for, uh, but not like you know anybody would anyway. So. Uh, <laughs> If you need to uh, to get in touch, and uh, feel free to obviously, uh, you know, LinkedIn would be your uh, your best uh, your best chat. Love it. I'm sure there are people who would be interested in working in Paris, or French people in Paris who'd be interested in working with someone who's written a book about insights that they might apply to their planning work. Gregory, it was wonderful to meet you in Paris. I have a few other interviews coming up with people that you introduced me to, so thank you for that. And uh, I hope I get I to see know. you again sometime. Yeah, me too. Take care. Thank you for joining me here. Peace. Bye-bye.